Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. It is August 18th as we record that. So that means that my guest Jim Callis and I are recovering from a very late night last night. The draft deadline and Jim, we don't want this to be a, a pat on the back fest, but uh, do want to thank you uh, here on the podcast for all the hard work and just uh, a fun. You know, the deadline is a lot of work and it's a lot of uh, headache in some ways. And there's that calm before the storm. But I, I think you will admit that between yourself, uh, Aaron Fit, uh, myself, uh, you, JJ Cooper, Nathan Rohde, with a lot of adrenaline flowing at Baseball America last night. It, it did end up being a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And you know, it's funny because I get all kinds of emails. And obviously, I, I'd be curious to count how many different people I talked to since probably Thursday or Friday, where I think for four days I pretty much sat in my office. Uh, about uh, 18 hours a day working the phones, but then you know a lot of people would say, "Geez, you know, the, the, you, you know, it must be a lot of work." I know it's a difficult time of the year, but if we didn't enjoy it, it would be a lot different. I mean, it's kind of fun. I mean, we live for these guys, these draft guys, who I think in a lot of cases, Baseball America brings to the public's attention before anybody else, and, and then find out if deals are going to get done. And you know, it, it's fun. You know, I think breaking news and, and having deals before anybody else gets them, and and I'll throw the kudos back at, at the rest of the team. You know, Aaron fit last night. No doubt. You know, we were talking about this. I mean, Aaron does a tremendous, tremendous job on the college side of things, and you know that relationship. Uh, you know, he got the deals of Steven Strasburg's deal before anybody else from Steven Strasburg himself because Steven had a relationship with Aaron, and yeah, he, and had, you and he I, looked you know, at his cell number. He looked at his cell phone and saw who the call was from. And answered it, and that's because it was from Aaron, and it wasn't some Johnny Come Lately. It was someone he had a relationship with over two years. You know, and and, and uh, you and I were joking about this, John. But uh, you know, uh, you, you've been tagged, I think, uh, since your early days at Baseball America with the uh, the bull in the china shop moniker. But when <laughs> our uh, we we had website difficulties right before the deadline when we were. You know, we had Matzik's deal, and we had Strasburg's deal, and we couldn't post them. You uh, very calmly, I don't know if you were uh, sedated or, or medicated, but you very calmly uh, steered us over to our uh, Twitter account. So we got the word out there, and, and we're still breaking stories on Twitter uh, as our, our last resource. I think it was handy that I was still a little sick, so that was good. My energy level was too low for me to, to get irate, but uh, it was a lot of fun. We added at least 200 followers last night to our uh, Twitter feed. That's at twitter.com backslash Baseball America. You can go there and you can sign up to follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can email us at podcast at baseballamerica.com. We will read a podcast email that's not from uh, Joe LeCates in this uh, in this edition of the uh, of the podcast. And now Jim will really dive in after, because it was a lot of fun. I want to make sure we talked a little bit about that. And again, just congr- thank really the, the whole team and thank all of our readers who had so much interest and crashed our website. Um, which is a, a fun problem to have to get around. Not really fun, actually, but uh, we, we were able to work around it last night. But let's get into the nitty-gritty and talk a little bit about the draft. And like you said, Aaron Fitt got the details of the Steven Strasburg contract. Jim, Aaron also won the in-house uh, office pool. Uh, he was closest to the pin on what Strasburg would end up getting. And I think we all thought that the Nationals would wind up bidding against themselves a little bit more than they ended up doing, but pretty reasonable deal. I think the Nationals come out a big winner in getting Steven Strasburg, and yes, they gave him the biggest bonus in contract and draft history for a player who signed with the club that drafted him, and they gave him the largest contract in draft history, and I still think the Nationals might have gotten a pretty big bargain out of Steven Strasburg last night. 
I, I think it was a good deal for everybody involved. And I would just like to say for the record that uh, I did not get a chance to uh, drive a ball closest to the pin in that pool. I think you're right. You did not. You and, and I have been saying since May, and not that I you know, necessarily knew where it would end up, but that I, you know, that my stock line, I've been asked about him so many times on radio shows or whatever, or, or written about it, that he's so talented, he's almost a prisoner of his own talent, and whatever your minimum offer would be to him would, would be too much to risk turning down, especially for a pitcher. And the number I always threw out there was, if you offer him $15 million, I don't see how he can turn that down. So, I've heard, I have heard you say that, so you're right. <laughs> so I, we, we'll, we'll get, you can give Aaron his kudos, but I never got a step to the tee on that one. But no, it's... Yeah, I think that you know, and I think that's what it kind of came down to in the end. I mean, the the fifty million dollar number that Scott threw out there and referenced, you know, Dice K. Matsuzaka and Jose Contreras and A. Roldis Chapman. I mean, you can argue, you know, I think from a prospect standpoint that this guy, you know, is better than those guys. Right. But he's not free agent, and and that's simply what it came down to. He wasn't free to negotiate. I don't have any doubt. If he were a free agent, that he would have gotten fifty million. Probably more. I mean, can you imagine the Red Sox and the Yankees bidding against each other for Steven Strasburg? Uh, I mean, that would have been kind of fun to monitor. But I think the Nationals were smart. You know, I wondered over the weekend when Stan Caston, you know, came out and, and really made some you know public comments, wondering if they were going to sign him. And you know, Scott Boris can't be trying to change the parameters by which we value players. But you know, for all the grief Scott takes, Scott kept very quiet in this. You never heard Scott, you know, throw anything back at the Nationals. And, right. You know, I, I think what the Nationals did was very smart. One I had yesterday was, you know, how high would they, they go? Would they dramatically up their offer? You know, would they go from one and a half to 15, you know, up closer to 20 at the end? But, but it played out, you know, it, it's funny. <laughs> Everybody kept saying, you know, what do you know, for days, you know, what do you hear in Strasbourg? Even other agents, teams, what do you hear in Strasbourg? And, and I, and I always said, well, I mean, we know how this is going to play out. A, whatever they agree to is going to be so huge. MLB does not want that deal done until right before the deadline. They don't want anybody else trying to use that deal to, to negotiate off of. And B, I mean, Scott's MO, and it's very effective, is if you don't meet his asking price, he'll give you every opportunity to bid against yourself, and he'll take you right up until the deadline. So they weren't ever going to get to $50 million. So it was going to be a deal where, you know, eleven forty-five, eleven fifty, the Nationals' offer was finalized. You know, and it was probably finalized before that. And then at that point, you know, Scott Boris and Steven Strasburg and Strasburg's family would make a decision on whether they were going to take it. So it kind of played out. I mean, I think like everybody should have expected, you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing over the weekend. I, th- I think by a lot of people who don't cover the draft usually that, oh, my God, these numbers are huge and he's crazy for turning it down and what's going to happen. But it, it kind of played out like we would have expected. Sounds, Jim, like you're criticizing Rob Dibble's column on MassInSports.com. Well, uh, not just Rob Dibble. I mean, Jack <laughs> McDowell had a – as hard yeah. as it might be to imagine, Jack McDowell had a, a less lucid column uh, <laughs> on some Chicago website. I did a radio show with Jack Morris – was insistent. You know, Jack Morris is a guy who lost money. I guess he eventually got some of it back in the summit, but, you know, the, the owners Collusion, colluded yeah. against him. And, you know, you'd think here'd be a guy who'd be, you know, players deserve what they can get. You know, the owners are, are pocketing the money. And, he, and, he, and Jack Morris is convinced that Steven Strasburg now will have no incentive to, to basically perform or care uh, about anything. And, you know, we'll go in the tank. Uh, I, have to say, I, don't, I don't think of sympathetic and Jack Morris in the same sentence. But uh, it's just, 
you know, it's 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 funny. But, you know, there are a lot of people over the weekend worried. You know, right? How about Ryan Zimmerman? I mean, mm-hmm. Ryan Zimmerman, now Steven Strasburg's teammate. You know, we, we made some critical remarks. You know, and it's yeah. You know, it's it's. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, John. But I guess the players, or at least the players who write columns or do radio shows or talk to the Washington Post about Steven Strasburg, are as uh, self-centered and self-interested as uh, the stereotype makes them out to be. I think you're right. I think that's a good way to, to sum that up. But one thing I will say is you did see, uh, not necessarily from Boris, but there were a lot of leaks where reporters were saying that Boris was talking pretty negatively about the national system in back channels when he would talk to people off the record. I did see a lot of that. But publicly, I, I will say that I do respect the Boris Corporation. It's a very consistent playbook. They stay, they, they execute their plan. If it doesn't work out for a guy like LeVon Washington, hey, it doesn't work out as we help transition into the rest of the draft. But they follow their playbook. They're very good at executing. And that's why he represents so many of the top players because his track record is extremely strong. So you can think what you want to think about the Boris Corporation whether they're good for baseball or bad for baseball, I think it actually the reality is they're a little bit of both. But I think the uh, it was definitely a good night for the Boris Corporation. There were two unsigned first-rounders, Jim, for the second straight year after we had a run of years where you either had one or no unsigned first-rounders. But last night, Matthew Perk, Rangers, and LeVon Washington of the Rays, those Rays, uh, you know, those are the clubs that drafted those players, did not sign. First, LeVon Washington, who was kind of my, one of my bet noirs of this entire draft. I think I was higher on him than most clubs and, and higher on him than most people because I thought he was a, a guy who could hit. It sounds like the Boris Corporation really believes in him strongly. In fact, I was talking to a scout today, uh, Jim, over email, who said that uh, he actually liked LeVon Washington better than Donovan Tate um, and that he'd heard that there was some talk that people uh, in the Boris Corporation liked LeVon Washington better than Donovan Tate. He wasn't asking for Donovan Tate money. He didn't have the football option, and he also has a bum shoulder. Um, but that's a, a, a speed guy who can hit, who's athletic. He seemed right up the Rays' alley. That was a vexing one that that didn't get done. Um, it seemed like that one was one where they were close almost from the get-go. You, you would have thought the Rays drafted him because they thought they knew what the parameters were to get him done. And then Matthew Perk sounds like that's one where the Rangers and Matthew Perk and his family and his advisor were pretty far apart. Uh, but both these guys are going to be factors in the draft the next two years. Washington probably at a junior college next year, and Perk is an eligible sophomore two years from now at TCU. What was your take on, on those two guys not signing? Well, Perk, I thought there was a, a fairly good chance that Perk might not sign. We're still, uh, you know, the Rangers have talked a little bit publicly about what happened. We, we haven't necessarily heard the the other side, but but that was one. You know, when Texas is a state I do in our draft coverage, our pre-draft coverage, and talked to a lot of area scouts, and, and they spoke about the fact that, that Perk's dad, not that he was a, a bad guy or anything, he wasn't one of these stage fathers, but but just felt like his son, you know, was as good as you know pretty much any high school pitcher ever, and you know that's why they threw out the the Porcello money. You know, Porcello and Josh Beckett, you know, hold the record for the largest guarantee ever for high school pitcher at seven million. And, and my sense was that you were, you know, he probably the the Perk's dad. I just wondered whether they were going to will be willing to take a number less than any of the other high school pitchers. And you know, we saw you know, Jacob Turner sign a major league deal with a four point seven million dollar bonus and a a five and a half million dollar uh, 
of value in, in terms of salaries and other guarantees in there. And, uh, you know, I wonder if that had some effect on it. Um, you know, the reports are, I guess, the Rangers went up to $4 million, But, you know, I know, you know, just, you know, Mr. Perk, I guess, felt very strongly about his son. And, you know, he does have, the, you know, a little bit of an added advantage in that he'll be a draft-eligible sophomore two years from now and could come out of the draft then. So uh, I, that one didn't surprise me as much. I mean, LeVon Washington, uh, you know, I haven't heard both sides of that one either. I think there's perhaps some disagreement as to what the two sides had agreed LeVon would right. sign for before the draft. But, you know, you, you know, the thing that was interesting is when the Rays, you know, the Rays issued a press release yesterday afternoon saying we don't expect to sign our first and second round picks. And, you know, their second round pick was going to Stanford and, you know, he comes from a wealthy family. And in the press release it was like, you know, we wish him well. We knew this would be tough. You know, we'll get the pick back. In LeVon Washington, the press release, it was basically, you know, said we, we, we thought we knew you'd sign for a certain number and you haven't. And, well, we're moving on. It almost seemed like they were trying to speak directly to Washington and, and go around Boris a little bit on that one. Um, you know, and I think the thing is, if this guy comes back from his, his shoulder surgery he had this year, you know, and he's throwing, you know, it all decently next year. Yeah, if he's even a 30 or a 40 arm. I mean, you know, we, most center fielders can't throw. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's like a 6'2", 6'3", runner in the 60, um, who can hit with some pop. Um, just a tremendous athlete. You know, like I said, I, I think he was a really underrated guy by just about everybody but you, John. I mean, I know when we were doing our pre-draft stuff and we run our list by teams. I had teams tell us, multiple guys, you're high on LeVon Washington because I think guys weren't able to get the the best look at him because he wasn't fully healthy. But, you know, next year's crop of college hitters is is very poor, yeah. relatively speaking, not even as good. As, there's no Dustin Ackley. Uh, like there is in this year's class. I don't even think there's a Grant Green right now, even though Green had a, a little bit of a disappointing year. Yeah, no, it's, if LeVon no Washington's healthy, John, you're talking about a guy who could go perhaps in the top 10 or 15 picks of the draft. You know, if he could prove he could play center and not just have to be a second baseman. So, yeah, he didn't sign now. I, I think in the long run, the, the Rays may regret sign, not signing him more than LeVon Washington's going to regret not signing the Rays. We also talked, I mentioned Donovan Tate and all that, Jim. Donovan Tate and Jacob Turner both setting uh, some draft records. Uh, Tate getting the largest signing bonus for a high school player, $6.25 million, although it's a two-sport deal, so it's spread out. It's not all up front. And Jacob Turner getting the highest signing bonus for a high school pitcher. I don't think either of those were surprises. What were maybe some of the biggest surprises? Were the the biggest surprises almost uh, really the, the two guys the Orioles signed? In double-digit rounds, with Michael Ullman getting nine ninety-five, nine hundred ninety-five thousand dollars in the eleventh round, and Coffee, the left-hander out of Texas, uh, coming off Tommy John surgery, he signed for nine hundred ninety. I have to think those two might have been the biggest surprises of the entire draft in terms of, you know, I think we saw there were other clubs like the Pirates where we you could see that their plan was spend on later round guys. I think the Orioles came as a little bit of a surprise. Um, even though they drafted a guy in Matt Hobgood who wasn't a consensus top five guy, and they took him because he was he, he was their guy. He signed for their money. He got out early. But I mean, the, the Orioles very very aggressive yesterday uh, this weekend. Was that a big surprise to you? Um, maybe a, a little bit. I mean, what, what was interesting is you, you, you I hadn't really thought about this way, John. But you're right. The Orioles did essentially what the Pirates did. They were just less public about it. I right. mean, the Pirates. Before, 
Kraft kind of said, if we do something where we take a a guy who we you know we sign quickly for right around slot money, rather than a guy who's going to cost a lot more, will be aggressive later. Well, the Orioles did the same thing with Matt Hobgood and just didn't explain what they were doing. I, I, I do think talking to people around baseball, there's no question that even with you know 15.1 million for for Strasburg and seven and a half million for Ackley and 5.5 for Turner and 6.25 million for Tate and all those huge numbers being thrown around. The deal that surprised the most people by far was Cameron Coffey getting $990,000 in the 22nd round. I mean, you can, I can see where the Orioles, why they dream on him because I mean, you're talking about a six foot four, very projectable left hander who was throwing 91, 94 this spring. But, but the caveat there is not only did this guy have Tommy John surgery, I mean, I, I think people know that part of it, or at least people who read Baseball America know that part of it. But a year ago, Cameron Coffey was throwing in the mid-80s last summer, which is why he wasn't a real high-profile guy. And he, and he threw 91-94 for about three games before he got hurt. Now, you know, it is Tommy John surgery. Guys a lot of times come back even better than ever. Um, you know, Talk about the surgery is certainly good. But, yeah, but it's uh, – but still, I just don't think anybody saw that one coming. I mean, by comparison, I mean, Luke Bailey was a, a more Great highly point. touted prospect. Great point. Um, Cameron Coffey. He also had Tommy John surgery this spring. He's a catcher, so, I mean, I would guess you probably have a little less worry, I mean, you know, than the pitcher coming back from Tommy John. I mean, you obviously need your arm, but you don't have to be able to spin different pitches and, and that type of thing. And Luke Bailey was a more higher-profile guy. And he signed for 750 with the Rays. So I, I just, if you had asked me, would Cam, you know, if Cameron Coffey would have signed, you know, based on, he's a Texas guy, so he's a guy I did a lot of stuff on before the draft. And you said, hey, okay, if this guy signs, what do you think he'd get? I probably would have thought about 350 to 500. Now, it's funny how this works in the draft. I mean, we always talk about ability versus signability. And I mean, two things that helped Cameron Coffey while he's negotiating with the Orioles are he's from a, a very well to do family. So, you know, signing him for 350 or 500 doesn't necessarily mean as much to him or his family as it, as it would to somebody else. Right. And two, he had a Duke scholarship, and the family valued education very highly. So it, it's funny, all these things that go into determining a bonus, but if the, if the kid was from more of a middle-class family going to, I won't single anybody out to think I'm picking on their school, say a generic state school, <laughs> he probably doesn't get as much money. It, it's just funny how the draft works that way. It is, uh, and like you said, this, the numbers that just get thrown around are just so amazing. You know, we have our chart on BaseballAmerica.com that J.J. Cooper put together. How much does your team spend? Because we have confirmed bonuses for the first 10 rounds for all the clubs. And the Orioles check in at 14th, but those $2 million bonuses basically are not included. So you throw those guys in there, suddenly the, the Orioles go from 14th to 8th. And I do think you really are seeing clubs, and I, I think the Rockies are one, Jim, where they go out and get Tyler Matzik, basically the number three talent in the draft. There really wasn't a strong consensus three most of the spring after Strasburg and Ackley. And I think Tyler Matzik, by the time the draft rolled around, was the consensus number three talent. Think of the consensus number three talent, I think, at number 11. Get him for less than $4 million. In other words, like an $800,000 bonus less than Jacob Turner, where that was probably at least a push for most evaluators, and you might give Matzik the edge because he's left-handed. Um, I, I thought that was a coup for the Rockies, who have shown they can win at the big league level by scouting and player development. They went to the World Series with that in 2007. They're leading the National League wild card, really using that approach in 2009. Um, 
And I think you're starting to see this trend of teams like uh, the Mariners, uh, but more uh, the, the Padres, very aggressive in this year's draft, very aggressive last year in Latin America, I think changing their approach in this year's draft, not necessarily relying on pitchers who can hit the mid and throw good change-ups, getting a little more aggressive with athletes. You didn't really see a Jeff Decker kind of guy drafted this year. You saw them go more after athletes. Uh, you see the A's being very aggressive in spending in the draft, the Pirates, the Orioles. It seems like the consensus is to heck with the uh, commissioner slot recommendations. It makes more sense for us to invest uh, our revenues in scouting and player development if we're going to build from within. And to our knowledge, Jim, every club signed at least one player for an above-slot uh, bonus, and that's the first time that's happened since uh, the, the slots came into being uh, earlier this decade, I guess, eight years ago, right? Well, I'm not sure if it's the first because we, we don't have complete data necessarily for some of these years, but it's the first, I think, that we know about. Even last year when teams were kind of told, go ahead and get players, worry about ability, not as much signability, four teams didn't go over slots. I think it probably is the first. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, and, and we make this point all the time, um, and we keep hammering it home. I mean, the average team is going to spend, you know, on a draft five or six million dollars. You know, and there's some give or take depending on how high up you pick in the draft. Obviously, it's bigger money for the guys at the top. But you know, if you were willing to double that and go to ten or twelve million, you know, and the record coming into this year was eleven million. But if you let's just say you'd go ten million in the draft every year, that'd be an extra four or five million dollars in the draft. You could get the equivalent of about four or five extra, you know, first sandwich, second round picks, and you're not going to hit on all those guys. But even if you go one for five or two for five, you're going to be so far ahead of the game. People, I think, just get caught up, and MLB does this, in the money that gets spent when these guys fall short of the big leagues or fall short of, right? Fall short of stardom. But to be able to cost control a player, excuse me, for six years. It is so worth so much more. Like even just to throw out Jacob Turner, five and a half million dollars. If Jacob Turner, you know, is the front line pitcher, everybody thinks he can become. This, the Tigers will probably save something like thirty or forty million dollars in salary on Jacob Turner over the first six years of his career. I mean, look at the, look what the, he, the Porcello contract. The Rick Porcello contract is already a bargain. Hey, Mark Pryor. Right. Mark Pryor only really had. The one full good season, great season really, for the Cubs. But guess what? That even in two thousand three money, that season was probably worth ten million dollars to them. I mean, yeah. he was the number one starter on a team that should have won the National League pennant. I mean, it's uh, uh, if if you hit on those players, it, the, the money up uh, that money is really a bargain. It's uh, no, no you don't even spend on the. It's not, even if you don't go for the five million dollar guys, even if you just get you know five extra million dollar guys, you're going to hit on some of those. Danny Nobler, you know, who's one of the very early employees in Baseball America history, maybe the second editorial employee ever, um, wow. did a, a blog today at CBS Sports, and he had me give him some information. But he went back and there's there's I guess 15 players who've gotten a five million dollar uh, or more major league deal out of the draft. And Eric Munson is the one guy who the team would be filled with remorse. But everybody else either got more than their money's worth out of the player or traded him, you know, like Andrew Miller for Miguel Cabrera or Delman right. Young for Matt Garza and Jason Bartlett. Every one of those other teams would be, you know, you go back and say that team has to be happy with what they've done. And I think the team that really deserves a lot of credit in all this is Colorado Rockies. 
Agreed. They aren't necessarily a free-spending team. You know, a lot of times the temptation is for the middle market and small market clubs to let these tough signability guys drop through the draft. And the Rockies stood up at 11 and said, we're going to take Tyler Matzik, who's the third best player in the draft. There were, and, and, you know, we all knew there was no pre-draft deal there. You know, like, okay, we'll meet his number, which, you know, was supposed to be unprecedented money, which everybody took to mean more than the $7 million Porcello and Becky got. You know, and they had some extra yeah, – they had pick 32 and pick 34, so they didn't need Matzik to make their draft. But they stuck to their guns, and I think more teams need to do this, is just take the best player and find a way more. to sign rather than let him go to, to the better teams. And the Rockies stood up, and then, you know, they had to wait till the last minute, but they had a very, I think, calculated and reasonable negotiation. And I'm with you, John. I, $3.9 million is certainly not a bad deal by any means for a, for a high school pitcher, but I, I, I had sensed that Matzik was – not that they want to play pro ball, but would have been happy had he attended Oregon. You're perfectly willing to do either. And my over-under on what Matzik would have signed for would have been, I, I thought, $5 million. I thought I was going to take at least $5 million to I was, sign. I was about to say, my, if I had to set the over-under, I would have said $4.75 million, and I would have probably taken the over. So uh, it's, a, it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm completely with you, and I, I definitely think that the, the Rockies, I think we've been a little critical, at least I have, I think the Rockies have been fairly conservative over the last few years drafting uh, guys like uh, Greg Reynolds or Casey Weathers. Been very college-heavy over the last few years, and some of those guys have definitely worked out, um, but some of them haven't. And uh, more of their impact talent of late has come from international players. A guy like Ubaldo Jimenez uh, springs to mind. Troy Tulowitzki, obviously, a great college pick that they were picking you know, seventh in that draft. And I think Tyler Matzik... Not only went against type from what other clubs have been, you know, other clubs have been avoiding those kind of confrontations, but also went a little bit against type for the for the Rockies. But they so they're so good and they trust their guys in Southern California so much. Among them, Dave Snow, the former Long Beach State coach, who's a special scouting advisor for them. Bill Schmidt lives in Southern California. If there was anybody they were going to feel confident about and stepping out on, it was going to be a guy, a guy like Matzik, who they've probably seen thirty times over the last three years. So. I just I'm I'm very happy for the Rockies that it worked out, and I really hope it works out long term. I hope that you know, Tyler Matzik and that career goes well, so that other teams follow the Rockies' example. Let's wrap up the podcast. We've got a podcast question. The inbox is at podcast at baseballamerica.com. And speaking of Southern California, Warren Worthington, who's been a longtime podcast listener and emailer, sends in. I know he has almost eight extra months to work with, but Aaron Crow is turning into the next Matt Harrington. Uh, Crow probably should have taken the Nationals offer last year, even though I didn't think John would disagree with this. He might not even get that from the Royals and essentially has delayed the start of his MLB career for two years. While it's debatable that Drew Storen is the prospect Crow is, the reality is he costs less, he's rocketing through the National system, and all probability he'll be in the big leagues next season for a team that desperately needs quality arms in the bullpen, as opposed to a player who may or may not ever sign with anybody. Thanks for reading this, Warren Worthington. So, Jim, I have to say, on some level... I really agree with Warren. I I really kind of you know wonder what what Aaron Crow is waiting for. Um, I, I really I'm stunned he didn't sign with the Nationals last year. That was we've talked about that off air. That was a perfect storm of uh, agent, player, general manager who was super incompetent, <laughs> um, owners who listened to the incompetent general manager. And Stan last, Kasten, team president too. Yes, so. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, Stan Caston, and then and then the, this this deadline process, this horrible process, 
And then you throw in the last minute the Brian Mattis contract that really was a below market deal that the Orioles got, which is a great deal for the Orioles, but really made things difficult for Crow and the Hendricks brothers, the Nationals. That was a perfect storm of everything coming together. Uh, it sounds like Aaron Crow, though, uh, talking to you, and I'm like, you're pretty confident that Aaron Crow is going to eventually sign. Let's also bring in Tanner Shepherds here, the other uh, holdout. Crow sounds like he's a lot closer to signing than Shepherds, I guess, right? I, I think that's correct, and it's. I, I just would caution before we we have we put Aaron Crow on the road to Matt Harrington. Um, <laughs> let's see if he signs out of this year's draft. If, if he goes into next year's draft, I think that's a little more fair to say. But I would agree. You know, unlike Harrington, I mean, Crow's stuff was there this year too. You know, Harrington never showed the same stuff. And I just think with Crow and the Royals, it was a situation where the Royals, you know, went uh, well over slot two million on Will Myers in the third round, well over slot with Chris Dwyer for one point four five million in the fourth round. When they found out that the deadline does not apply to Crow, I wonder if they just said, just said, you know what, we don't really need to sign him and and take heat for three guys. I, I think, you know, the next date that really means anything, you know, to to Crow and the Royals is, I mean, I think ideally you'd like to get him signed soon, you know, in the next month or so, and maybe send him to the fall league. But I, I think we're going to see Crow sign fairly soon, um, and I think, I, you know, I think. I don't know what the number is going to be. Um, I, I think I'm, you know, if I'm Aaron Crow and I'm the Hendricks brothers, I'm probably trying to get more than the three and a half money, three and a half million dollar bonus I turned down last year. Um, and he may get it. He may get it as a total package. It, it seems to me it would be pretty easy to construct a deal where you could sign him to a bonus that's close to the one point seven million dollar slot, and then give him a major league deal that's worth more than the. Three and a half, so that you know the crow side can say, "Hey, we got more than we turned down," and the team can say, "Hey, we signed him for close to slot," and and everybody's happy. We, with Shepherds, he he's the enigma, John. I mean, he is. He, before the draft, you know, we all heard before the draft he was looking great in workouts. People were getting excited. There was talk at one point he might be your number two pick in the draft. Right. And then he went to St. Paul, and he and he was showing some velo, but his command wasn't real great. And I mean, he was okay, but not spectacular results. And then. And then where it got weird was he took about 13 days off right before the draft. Now, I know there was talk, oh, the rain out here, rain out there. He, the guy didn't get rained out for eight straight days. I mean, he skipped at least one start. And then there were reports when well, he pitched the day before the draft or two days before the draft. And there were reports, and again, I mean, you get these reports from the indie teams, and they're obviously there to help the player. So, you know, he threw 99 miles an hour is what we heard. Okay, so then, you know, fast forward to draft day, he goes in the supplemental first round to the Rangers, which is kind of surprising, and, and you know, hasn't thrown anywhere since then. Um, the only real, you know, there were rumors going around that he might need surgery, you know, that he fell in last year's draft because of a shoulder injury that never had surgery that was kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what was wrong with it. Um, and the only thing I've seen recently, I saw his agent, um, I just was reading the story on the Internet about a week ago, the Greg Gensky, his agent at Legacy, said that, A, these rumors he needs surgery are, are not true, and, B, uh, we've got some tryouts lined up with Japanese clubs, <laughs> I think, towards the end of August. And, and they mentioned Japan before the draft, too. And I don't I don't understand why a Japanese club – I mean, Tanner's you know, got a lot of upside. is going to invest you know, significant money in uh, a guy who's barely pitched in the last 18 months. And, I mean, they'd rather have guys who've been in the minors for six or seven years and are proven professionals. Right. He just just not fit that Japanese profile. So I don't, I don't know what's going on there. I mean, the, what I heard 
from from parties not directly involved in negotiations is that the Rangers were trying to sign him for a slot bonus. And, you know, I mean, this is a guy who would have been a top ten pick last year had he been healthy. But I, I just I have no idea where that one's going to end. I would think if they're going to sign him, and absolutely the Rangers didn't spend any money in the first round. They didn't sign their, their eighth or – I'm sorry, their ninth and tenth round picks. I mean, they have some money. Well, I guess Tom Hicks could be in financial trouble. You know, that's been reported. So who knows exactly what the numbers to spend. But I, I would think Tanner Shepherds has to throw for them. You would think so. Before they're going to give him some money. And, I mean, again, this guy has not thrown independently games and done a few workouts since last May, since May 2008. I, I, you know, I don't know what kind of shape he's in. So that one, I, I just have no clue. Yeah, that's he's definitely the biggest enigma still of the draft. And, uh, well, more uh, you know, signing bonuses after the 10th round will uh, show up. I would still say, Jim, we both would probably still take Aaron Crow over Drew Storen if we were the Nationals. But I do think Drew Storen's a nice consolation prize for the Nationals to get back to that uh, to the email. But I definitely agree. I, I expect Crow to still sign, and I wish I had any idea about Tanner Shepherds. But uh, it's uh, it is good. Uh, it'll be fine. It'll be nice if both those guys would just go ahead and sign. So we can just put a wrap on the 2009 draft, and we'll start looking forward to the 2010 draft, which may be known as the Bryce Harper draft, might be known as the draft of a, a really good high school class. I think it is shaping up to be a very underwhelming college class, and uh, some wild cards like Levon, uh, Levon Washington. I'm starting to call him Levon as if he were, you know, <laughs> yeah, his brother. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think you know Levon Washington might be a real wild card in next year's draft. I think re-entering next year's draft. It's not a bad, not a bad thing. Uh, 2009 draft greater than 2010 draft, so at, the, at least it looks like it at this early stage. So, great podcast though, Jim. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed. It. I think I think it sounds better over Skype as well than it did uh, in our previous iteration. So, uh, thank you for taking so much time uh, to talk about it a little bit, and uh, and we'll uh, we'll talk next time. Uh, probably be back with JJ Cooper on next uh, Baseball America podcast. So for Jim Callis, I am John Manuel. You can send those questions into us at podcast at baseballamerica.com or follow us on Twitter uh, at uh, twitter.com backslash baseballamerica. Until next time, so long, everybody.